Last week, the message was called Precious Faith, and we talked about how the faith that God has given is a gift that's precious. Today's sermon is called Fruitful Faith, because that gift produces something or some things, okay? So Peter starts off his second letter to Christians around the, Ro- around the Roman area by talking about this faith. It's precious. It's a divine gift. Uh, If you can look back at verse 1, it's granted by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Big deal. This faith is precious. More so, we mentioned last week, more so than any diamond, than any precious gem or stone or anything else in all the world. And Peter says kind of a blessing over the people. He asks that God's grace and peace be with them, be increasing in them, joy and rest, those kinds of things. And the first two verses answer the question, well, how are grace and peace multiplied in the life of the Christian? Look at verse 2, the end of it. They're in the knowledge of our, of God and our, and our, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how grace and peace are multiplied in the life of Christian by how well we're growing in our knowledge and understanding of God. So there's, I mentioned a direct relationship between our knowledge of God and how joyful we are. Just like there's a direct relationship between our knowledge of God and how rested, how peaceful we are, how settled we are. And it's this thing, you may have seen it on a bumper sticker, but it's it's no God, no peace, K-N-O-W. If you know God, you know peace. But if you don't know God, N-O, God, no peace. Because there's a direct relationship between them. So let's move into the next couple of verses, verses 3 through 9. Because I think the knowledge of God multiplies grace and peace, as verse 2 says. But verse 3 says not only grace and peace, but there's some other things that we receive. Let's, let's see. Verse 3 through 9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue knowledge, with no- and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Would you pray with me again? Lord, today is a reminder, just as we saw in those last verses, a reminder of the forgiveness in Christ that we receive by grace through faith, not a work of ourselves so that no one would boast. And so we thank you for it. Remind us of the goodness of salvation, the goodness of godliness the goodness of your people gathered together, spurring this on in one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So look at the, the, the that verse 3. There's something going on here 
that sets kind of the foundation for everything that Peter's getting ready to say, and it has to do with the, the power of God. Divine, His divine power. God, in His divine power, has granted or bestowed or given to Christians, what does He say? Everything needed that pertains to life and godliness. So everything that a Christian needs that pertains to the spiritual life of the soul, God has given through his divine power. That's a big deal that I don't know we think about too often. Everything that you need to live a life glorifying to God, God has given to you. He's given it to you when he revealed his son Jesus to you. He says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, through the knowledge of him who called us, this understanding and knowing God is, is huge. It's, it's key here. And if we go back to verse 1 and read it with the next few verses in mind, we could read it this way. When you obtained precious faith through the righteousness of Christ and not your own as a gift, his divine power also additionally gave you everything you need to live a life of holiness that's pleasing to God. So if God has set a standard for his children to reach, guess how they reach it? In the power that he has given them. That's it. See, we complicate that process an awful lot in thinking that I've got to do this. It's my responsibility now to make God happy and keep him in love, loving me. And that's not what Peter's getting at at all. Everything that God desires, he has given us in Christ. Grace, peace, everything needed for life and godliness are yours through the divine power of God granted to you by the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the source is the divine power of God. What's the goal of the power of God in the life of the Christian? A life of godliness, holiness. That's so the source is the divine power. The goal is godliness. And what's the channel by through that all flows? The knowledge of God. The more you know God, the more peace and rest you have, we've already said. The more joy you have, the more you know God, the more holy you become. Just like Peter defined and explained the characteristics of Satan back at the end of 1 Peter, he also now defines and explains some characteristics of God in verse 3. Notice this. He's a God who calls who called us, it says, knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God is a God who calls. He has called. We stated last week how significant it is when looking at verse 1 and how understanding that a sinner obtains faith just as a precious gift. This is a work of God and God calls sinners to himself and he gives the gift of faith. He calls us to himself, to his own glory and excellence, verse 3 says. Notice, which I think is really cool, what God calls Christians to, he already is. So God calls us to his own glory and excellence because he is glorious and because he is excellent. What God calls us to, to do, he supplies the power to accomplish. You guys know this from reading Old Testament Bible stories. Moses stuttered. I can't speak. I can't lead your people. 
in his own ability, he would say, I'm not equipped for this. And yet God called him and gave him the ability. Peter, in the New Testament, they're out on the boat. They see Jesus walking on the water and he says, call me out and I'll come. And Jesus says, come. And in his own strength, Peter couldn't do that. And we see evidence of that because in the next few scenes, he's looking away from Jesus to everything around him and he begins to sink. What God has called us to, God has equipped us to do. It's through his divine power, His the knowledge of him. Look at verse 4. Peter continues by explaining the knowledge of God even more. He says, by which he has granted to us his, his precious and very great promises. God is a God of great glory and excellence. And because of that, he makes some great promises. Great in the sense of big in scope, but also lasting in length of time. Great promises. And his glory and excellence, they just kind of overflow into these great promises to those who he's called to himself. If you've been called by God... Every promise is yours in Christ. Every promise of God is yours in Jesus Christ. And the answer is yes. It's it's through Christ. Look at the end of verse 4. So that through them, those promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. Through them, through the promises of God, Christians partake of the divine nature. Now, I, I don't think the divine nature here is us becoming a God. There are parts of belief systems that think that. I don't think that's what Peter's getting at. I think this is taking part in the godliness that his power leads us to. We engage with, it's kind of like sanctification. We Once we're justified, God puts us on that path of sanctification to the day he calls us home in glorification. And you, but in that span, the life of the Christian that you ha- you are, you can drag your feet in sanctification, and there are things that happen in your life that can be really unpleasant. Or we can join with the Lord in that, and there still may be unpleasant things. But when we join with the Lord, we experience His power. We experience victory over sin, and the way that we become partakers of the divine nature of his godliness, is that we have, verse 4b, the end of 4, escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Now think about the true nature of God with me. One of the first things that we should teach our children that we probably that probably comes to our mind when we think about who God is, the nature of God, is his sinlessness, right? His perfection, his holiness. God is cannot sin he is not he cannot be tempted to sin he does not sin and so if we think about the nature of god and who he is and if that god is calling us to himself making promises giving us the gift of faith everything necessary for life and godliness if that's the god who's calling us then the more that we trust in his great promises and rely on his divine power in our lives the less likely that we are going to be corrupted by the world and its sinful desires, right? And that's what Peter's saying. There's no desire in God for sin, and so the more that we partake of the divine nature, the less desire we have for sin. 
The more that we're like God, the less that we like sin. That's pretty simple. If we're, if we're operating at 100% all the time, and, and I think in some regards we are, if we're operating that way all the time, then in order to decrease our desire for sin, we have to increase our desire for God, or that has to be increased. Well, how, how does that happen? Well, the challenging truth is this. You can't expect to increase in godliness if you continue living according to your sinful desires. It's, it's pretty basic. I'm not saying anything that's mind-blowing or revolutionary there, but we need to be reminded of that. Many times, I, I, I myself have struggled with this. I heard teenagers throughout the years say, well, I, I want to do, I want to honor God and do what's right. But then they make a lot of differ, different decisions when the rubber hits the road, and it's hard. It's hard, and you know that. Even as adults, we know that. But what does John the Baptist say? In order for Jesus to increase, what must happen to us? We have to decrease. And so if we want, if our desire is to live godly, then we can't keep living like we were. Right? We sang some songs about that, just a closer walk with thee. That's, that's our plea, Lord. We're asking him to grant that because that's what we really want. If we're walking with Jesus more and more, closer and closer, we don't stay the same. We look different. And so I've encouraged you in this before, and one of the the good things about working out our salvation that Peter will say is is this idea of, of reflecting on the last year, five years, ten years. Do I Do I look like Jesus more than I did five years ago? Ten years ago, one year ago, six months ago. That's a good gauge. God's power and his promises, they graciously grant Christians the ability to escape the corruption of sinful desire. We say, well, I don't want to do those things. Well, here, here's one of the ways that we do that. Through the power of God, through knowing God more, the knowledge of him. So to say it kind of negatively, through the knowledge and promises of God, Christians escape Sinful desire. But on the positive side, through the knowledge and promises of God, Christians share in divine godliness. I think there's something else interesting here to note. These verses reveal a remarkably loving and generous God. To be rescued from death and hell is is one thing, and it's a necessary thing. This God who we're talking about, he invites people to be partakers of the divine nature. He didn't have to do that. He could have rescued us from that end and been done with us. And yet he invites us to partake of the divine nature. I, I don't, I couldn't find, um, every verse I wanted to share, didn't have time to share, but here's one from Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, that's the reality of who you are in Christ. Not a slave any longer. Not just a puppet. Not a robot. 
your son, adopted into the family, not only freed from sin, but brought close to God. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. These are some of the most dense, packed, theologically sound verses, and we could spend a lot of time on them. But Peter continues, because of God's divine power, because of his glory and excellence, because of his great promises, because we are partakers of his divine nature, he says, do something. Do something. All of these incredible things that happen and are happening in the life of the Christian create a sort of domino effect. So when I was a kid, we would take our report cards to my grant, my great uncle's house. And it was there that I learned what Brownswiger was. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you? I don't, I, I still don't know what's in it. I don't want to know what's in it. But we ate brown swagger and we played dominoes. But I didn't play dominoes right because I wasn't old enough and I didn't care. So what do you think I did with the dominoes? I stacked them up and I went all over his living room and would knock one down and then it would knock the next one down. Kids, have you ever done this before? If not, you should get some dominoes and try. It's a lot of fun. But it's called that domino effect. One thing happens and then it affects the next thing and the next thing. And the next thing. And I think to some degree, that's what's happening in these seven things that Peter lists here. Let's, let's look at them together. He says, for this very reason, because of all these incredible things, as you said, the great promises, the divine nature, all that stuff, because for this reason, he says, make every effort. The King James Version says, giving all diligence. Now, before we talk about these seven things, I, I do want to ask, because I think this is important to what Peter is saying here. Um, how many of you guys have ever bought a house or a car? Okay, most of us in here, we've bought one of those things, and we spend a lot of money on those things. We're still spending a lot of money on some of those things. Before you signed on the dotted line, what did you do? Okay, that's probably number one, right? Make sure you can afford what you're signing on the dotted line for. You did, you kind of talked about interest rates, talked about down payments, um, talk about, you know, mortgage stuff, um, all those things. Can I afford it? Um, you didn't just say, that's the car I want, draw me something up, I'll sign whatever. No. Even even the people with the most money in the world aren't making those decisions because they don't have a lot of money if they make those kinds of decisions. They don't do that kind of thing. They, they want to know the details. They want to have it right. So before important decisions are made or big purchases are made, it's important for the buyer to do what is commonly referred to as due diligence. And I think those in the real estate realm really know this extra well. Due diligence. This means that you pay close attention Extra close attention to the matters at hand, to what you're signing, to what's going on. Due diligence. So when you're buying a house, what do you do before you make an, or maybe after you've made the offer, but before you sign on the dotted line, you hire a home inspector, right? Because you don't want to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or however much you spend on a house that's got a, a, a bad foundation, 
because you're talking big time expense. You want to know these things. So you do your due, your due diligence. And this, I remember when we sold our house in Troy, the home inspector that the buyer hired, he came through with an extra fine tooth comb. And I mean, he even noticed that when we did our basement uh, renovation at our Troy house, that I installed the hot and the cold backwards. This guy noticed that. The homeowner would have noticed it pretty quick. But he noticed it and he put it in his report. And I thought, man, this guy is thorough. So you know what we did? We hired him to come and inspect our new house because <laughs> he was so thorough. We did our due diligence. This is not an unusual concept. This makes sense to us. But when it comes to understanding God, some people's approach just kind of seems half-hearted, flippant, thoughtless maybe. So when we say that salvation is all of God, we don't mean that you are just this external bystander watching everything happen from this position of uncaring disinterest. That's not what's happening. On the contrary, Peter says to give things pertaining to life and godliness your utmost attention, your due diligence, your earnest interest, your most effort that you can muster. Because of all that God is and all that God has done Peter says in verses 5 through 7, read it with me, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So it starts with faith, which is assumed here. That's the, that's the first domino in line. It's got to start with faith, which is a gift of God. Okay, so with faith, virtue, faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. These are the things that Christians are supposed to seek diligently, Peter says. These virtues are things that should be apparent in the life of each Christian. Guys, these seven things... Not exclusively, but these cover a very very wide berth of all that God has called us to. They identify those who have truly been called by the glory and excellence of God. But notice verses 8 and 9. Before we talk about these things briefly, these are some striking statements. And why I included them in this week's message too. Verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So if if these things identify your life as a Christian, you will continue being effective and fruitful in your life and your knowledge of Christ. I mean, isn't that what we want? To be fruitful? To be effective in our lives on this earth? If you do not, if these things do not identify your life, Peter also says, well, you've become blind, so nearsighted, so focused on other things that you've become blind to the truth of what Jesus has done for you. There, there aren't many more direct and abrupt sentences in all of Scripture than these two, than verses 8 and 9. 
Peter says, you, you want to be fruitful? You want to be effective? Do these things. If you don't do these things, here's what I know to be true about you, he says. You're blind. Ouch. This tells me that the things that Peter talks about in the list of, of qualities, of virtues, of dominoes, these things are pretty important for those of us who claim the name of Christ. These things distinguish, these qualities distinguish those who are partakers of the divine nature. Now remember, faith is a gift of God. When Peter says you add to it, the the ESV says supplement faith with these things, Peter's not implying that faith is lacking in some way, that salvation needs you to add something to it. He's not saying that at all. He's not saying that your faith is incomplete until you finish it with the things on this list. That's not what he's saying. The idea that Peter's getting at is growth, growth in the Christian life. Are these things, and that's why he says, are these things increasing if they're in you and they're increasing, we don't expect little infants two, three months out of the womb to be able to feed themselves, do we? We don't expect little babies to use the bathroom all by themselves. We certainly don't expect an infant in diapers to know how to read. But as they grow and learn, yeah, those are things that we expect from them, right? We expect a three, four, five-year-old to be learning how to use the bathroom on their own and a five, six, seven-year-old to be learning how to read. And some of those things that are milestones. At two months old, though, they're lacking some of those things. But by the age of 12, certainly by the age of 22, they ought to know how to read and use the bathroom and feed themselves. And if they can't, there's some other issue that we need to look into. We don't expect little infants to do all of those things. And yet, making the connection with our text today, I think that there are all too many uh, people in the world who claim Christ but are still unable to feed themselves. Still unable to read when they should be adding courage to their faith and steadfastness and patience and the things that God expects appropriate for that age so many are lacking in because they lack in their knowledge of God and I think this is Peter's point when he lists these virtues or these qualities he's saying faith is a gift you just add you just contribute to it in how you grow and how you learn and how you increase in these things. Christians, we do our due diligence in understanding who God is so that we can go and live properly. And here are the dominoes. Faith is the first that starts the whole thing. He says, add to that virtue. This is excellence, whatever is praiseworthy. So you might be reminded of what Paul tells Timothy. He says, whatever is good and holy and pure and praiseworthy, think on those things. That's what he's talking about here. We should think on those things too. Whatever is virtuous. Add to that, he says, knowledge or a right understanding or discretion and discernment. This is really just practical knowledge gained by a lot of times, personal experience. And so as we get older, as we mature in the Lord, this knowledge is growing as well. And like I said last week, 
if you don't know God, you don't have salvation. If you don't have salvation, you can't know God. So knowledge of God is very important. Next, he says, to knowledge, add self-control. King James Version uses the word temperance. It means to refrain from exploring sinful desires. It means to fight sin and Satan. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We're called to fight and resist. That's what real Christians do. Now, notice at this point that if our minds are occupied with virtuous things, that's number two on the list if you count faith as number one, if our minds are occupied with virtuous things, godly things, then we have a right understanding of good and evil, of right and wrong, and then we understand how to exercise self-control properly. So you see how these are dominoes that are causing the next one to fall? It starts with thinking properly about the goodness and godliness of God and having our minds focused on that. And when that's true, our knowledge then clears up quite a bit. And when our knowledge, when our understanding of these things is clear, well, we exercise self-control and we live differently. And so Peter continues. The next one, steadfastness or, or patience, your version might say. The practice of self-control results in patience, doesn't it? You show me a very uh, person that's out of control, they also aren't very patient, are they? Because one goes with the other. This patience, though, it isn't just like mindless endurance. And you all have been there before. Hopefully that's not your case right now where you're listening to me, but you're just like, you're enduring it, like you're being patient, but you're just, you're not engaged, you're just, it's just washing over you and there's no thought behind it. That's not the kind of patience that Peter's talking about here. It's a conscious submission of our human will to the will of God. We can, we're patient because we know that God is sovereignly in control and we can wait on Him. And his time. This intentional submission to God's will develops and actually strengthens holiness in our lives. He says to patience or steadfastness add godliness or holiness. That's the next thing. This is a reverence toward God. Um, a, a holiness that develops as we become partakers of the divine nature more and more. To that, he says, add brotherly affection or love of the brethren, love for others who are in the body of Christ. Peter uses this phrase two other times in his writings in these two letters. Chapter or First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he uses the same phrase, brotherly affection, and he uses it to describe evidence of salvation. That was one of the, the marks, distinguishing marks, of whether a person was obviously saved or not. Did they love other Christians? It's the same for us now. Jesus set that criteria up. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Peter also uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, when he's giving instruction on how the church is to behave in the midst of suffering. So he's giving instructions to that group. And he includes brotherly affection there. And then so Peter now in the list, he goes to the last one. He says to love. To brotherly affection, love. Or the King James uses the word charity. All right? And you might think, well, brotherly affection, that's love. It's like the same thing. Well, brotherly affection is love for the body. Love is love for all. Which is really the drive for missions, isn't it? 
This is why we send out, why the Southern Baptist Convention sends out missionaries every year and why we continue to support them, why we're intending to support and send James and Jasmine to to Japan. Because we love those people. We don't know those people, but we love them because God has called us through Jesus to take the message of salvation to them. And so when he says love, he means charity towards all. Love for everyone. I read this week, I couldn't find the author of this, but I read it this week. Out of faith, the root, spring the seven fair fruits of holiness, of which holy love is the fairest and the sweetest. No grace can remain alone. Each grace, as it is gradually formed in the soul, tends to develop and strengthen others. All graces meet in that highest grace of love, of charity. And this, this idea took my mind back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. He, he also goes there to say that if you don't love, if you hate your brother, that you're a liar and you really don't have the love of God in you. These are difficult verses, but we need to hear them. I think about these things, these qualities, these virtues. And I think about how I stack up against them. And maybe you were doing that as we were reading through them. I hope that you were to some degree saying, is this evident in my life? But I, I reflect on these things. And I quickly realize how f- quickly I fall short. How much I fall short. And my guess is that you feel the same. Maybe not every day. Maybe not all the time. But overall, yeah. And I think, man, the bar is set awfully high here, isn't it? It's almost like it's perfection or something. But the bar is set awfully high. So high, in fact, I think that it's down through the ages, some people have attempted to ignore these things, this bar, or maybe try to lower the bar a little bit with things that are less demanding. So holiness is the standard, but so that that's pretty difficult. So just just try to not drink alcohol. That's attainable. Holiness, that's too difficult. Just don't drink. Or, you know, self-control is really hard. So just try to not cuss. Don't say any bad words. That's a a good supplement. Like, you can replace it with that. And so we've lowered the standard of Scripture because it's so difficult. And then we try to hold others to those standards when it's not actually the Word of God. And what we do is we weaken and we cripple the church and Christians. What I need to do as a pastor is not to tell you all the things you can get away with and still be saved. It's how high we need to shoot the bar that we need to aim for and to reach for. That's what we need to be doing as Christians in our discipleship relationships as we send out missionaries is just not the minimum. Like, What is our call according to Scripture? That's a high bar. It's supposed to be, isn't it? There's a reason for that. But we minimize and we downplay the call of Scripture so frequently. And we just replace it with little things like, well, don't drink or don't cuss or don't smoke or don't do all these other little things. Sometimes they're not little. But we replace the true call of Scripture with these things, and we shouldn't. What does Peter say? Remember verses 8 and 9, these abrupt and direct comments. He says, if these qualities in verse 8, if these things are yours and are increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, these qualities, Peter says, are yours in Christ. They belong to you. They are yours. Look back at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The question is, are they growing in you? Are they increasing? Are you making every effort? Are you doing your due diligence in these things? Or are you dragging your feet in sanctification? Because here's the thing. The grace of God doesn't forgive you of sin, make you alive together with Christ, and then lie dormant inside of you. That's the Spirit of God does not take up residence to just find a corner room and be content to stay there until you die. The grace of God doesn't work like that. The Spirit of God doesn't work like that at all. The grace of God is ever-increasing in your life. It's always advancing. It's always pushing Christians to Christ-likeness. Because that's the standard. Christ-likeness. Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 30, that if God has called you, he has also planned, predestined, he uses the word, for you to be conformed to the image of his son. God's spirit in you isn't stopping until you're like Jesus. Not a God like Jesus, not deity, but until you're like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son. So you want to be effective in your walk with the Lord? Most of us would shake our heads, yeah, I do. You know Jesus? You want to be effective in your walk with the Lord? Peter says, make effort to grow in these things. Do due diligence here. You want to have fruitful faith? Okay. Practice these things. If you're increasing in these virtues, you are increasing in your knowledge of Jesus. If you're not increasing in these virtues, what does Peter say about you? He says that you're so short-sighted that you've become blind. Peter's last phrase in that verse, though, helps us see that this word about being blind, he's, he's talking about believers. He says you're blind because you've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. Well, only a Christian has been cleansed from their former sins. So it's possible, is what Peter is saying, it's possible to be saved and yet still have become blind to what we should be about in this life. And I wonder if that's where we are so often. Saved by the grace of God, but now have been blinded. So short-sighted with materialism and you know, influence and whatever else in this world that grabs our attention. We're so short-sighted with those things. All of a sudden, we've become blind to the truth of what we should be about in this life. And Peter says... That a person gets blind, gets that way. Why? Because they've forgotten something. They have forgotten the life-changing truth of the gospel. They have forgotten about how their sins have been erased, forgiven in Christ. They've been cleansed from those sins. In, in reality, you could say it this way, a person who's so, a Christian who's so blinded to this truth, has forgotten what their identity is in Christ. They've forgotten who they are. That their sins have been forgiven, cleansed. 
So what has Peter been saying? Who are we in Christ? This is what, these are some of Peter's words. He says, you're partakers of the divine nature. Obtained faith by the righteousness of Christ. Called by God. Kept by God. Born again, he says in the first chapter of First Peter. Born again to a living hope. Heirs with Christ. Receivers of great and precious promises. And he says, don't forget this. You have been forgiven of your sins. Forgiven. Cleansed. Washed away. You are a new person in Christ. And Peter says, now act like it. Your parents ever said that to you, kids, or adults when you were kids? You tell you like, hey, you're an omis. Act like it. I know what that means because I know how I was raised. Maybe your parents said something similar. I think Peter is taking us under his wing and as a loving father to some degree is saying, Rod, you're a Christian. Now act like it. And he's saying that to everyone who's reading this. Are the virtues that he listed here like dominoes increasing in our life? Are they setting off one another? Are they growing? Maybe we just need to be reminded this morning of the forgiveness that's ours at the cross of Christ. Your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. He said, never, never to be held against you. Those points never meet. Your sin is never held against you because you have the righteousness of Christ. It has been imputed and given and transferred to you. So be reminded of his righteousness, the cleansing of your sin, and let these things lead you to do your due diligence to make every effort, Peter says, to grow in righteousness and godliness and be effective and fruitful in your faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, I I genuinely believe that's the desire of our hearts. Every person that you've genuinely called and saved, Lord, starts to some degree with this desire. We want to be effective in our faith. We want to be fruitful. And yet, just like the seed in the parable that falls along soil, that gets choked up, it gets concerned about the things of this life, and it loses sight, and Lord, it's easy to become blind. And Lord, if that's me, and if that's my friends listening today, Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from that. We need to be rescued. We need the scales torn, ripped from our eyes so that we can see the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of what he's done in our lives. He has cleansed us from our sins. We no longer bear the weight of them anymore. Christ has paid for it all. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, Lord, remind us of your goodness. And as we now gather around your table to think and be reminded of the cross, Lord, I would pray that you would continue in your spirit to move in our hearts and to be working in us this effective faith, this precious faith that you have given. Lord, may we be fruitful as a result of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.